0: Tonight, we're going to cover my introduction to relationships. It's called, How to Know That This Love Is Real. I find, in general, that when we get into relationships, we often are not sure whether or not it's the right one, how to know, really, is this person really for me? Is this person really the person that I want to spend a long period of time with? It's scary, I mean, hypothetically speaking, right? So, I'm gonna try to go into a little bit of the psychological perspective, a little spirituality, try to mix it together. It's not a lecture, it's a dialogue. You're welcome to give comments, questions, death threats, the works. So we're going to start on page four. I'll start off with a quote from my teacher. Called, "It's called the Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson, of blessed memory. And he said the following. He said, love is the transcendence of the soul over body. Most people get into relationships because they want something. They decided that enough is enough. I don't want to be alone. So therefore, I'm going to get into a relationship so I can get something out of this relationship. The problem is like this. If you're getting into a relationship to get something out of it, then what are you going to get out of it? Absolutely nothing. Because how do you expect that someone... If see, if you get into the relationship to get something out of it, and he's getting, or she's getting into the relationship to get something out of it, then what are you both doing? You're both just kind of living in these parallel universes. Both what? We're both taking. Exactly. Exactly. So you're living in these parallel universes, and as a result, what do you get? Nothing. So, every self-help book on psychology and relationships will tell you that you get into the relationship to give. And when you give, and when he or she gives, then the relationship will flourish. By the way, um, I'll tell you, I have a, a, I'm on an automatic list from Amazon. Any book, that comes out under the category self-help relationships is automatically sent to me. So I get about, I used to get about three books a week. Now, no joke, I get between 20 and 50 books a week. That's a lot of reading. It's a lot of books on relationships. Which means, if there's a lot of people writing about relationships, either one of two things are happening. Either... There's a lot of people that have a lot to say about relationships, or there's a lot of people that want to hear things about relationships. Or both. So what's the infatuation with infatuation? What's the 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 excitement with relationships? So I want to take away all of the outer layers. I'll tell you, I read lots of books on relationships. My background is in psychology. And 99.9% of the books I read on relationships are complete rubbish. I have found in all of my years, and I can tell you probably seven or 800 books, maybe more. I found two books, three books, three books that are even partially worth the paper they're written on. We'll talk about them later. But for now, I want to tell you a little story. A young, unmarried woman was once discussing with the Rebbe some prospective matches that had been suggested to her by a matchmaker, and she explained why none of them appealed to her. The rabbi chuckled, and he says, you've read too many romance novels. Love, he says, is not the overwhelming, binding emotion we find in the world of fiction. Real love is an emotion that intensifies throughout life. It's the small, everyday acts of being together that make love flourish. It's the sharing and caring and respecting one another. It's the building a life together, a family and a home. As two lives unite to form one over time, there's a point where each partner feels a part of the other, where each partner can no longer visualize life without the other at his or her side. What is the number one, the number one secret for a successful, long lasting relationship. Please. Compromise. Compromise is very good. I like compromise. What else? Communication. Fantastic. You cannot have a loving relationship without proper communication. Yes? Friendship. Friendship, of course. You have to be able to have that camaraderie, be able to enjoy each other's company, for sure. What else? Respect. Respect, respect is very important. Mutual respect is the key. None of these are number one. Anyone else? I think humor. Humor. You've got to laugh. Place? If you can't yeah. laugh at each other, how can you? If you can't go through the laughing yet? Absolutely. <laughs> Very and important. And Very important. Once again, a fantastic key to a long lasting relationship, not the number you know, one key. Just loving yourself. Loving yourself—that's first. You gotta love yourself before you can love someone else. Absolutely. What else? I want number one. There is one thing, and without this, you cannot be in a long-lasting relationship. You say giving. Giving. You gotta give, right? You gotta give. It's not it, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. It's, it's, it it's one word. Yeah. Love. <laughs> really? Yeah. alone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Commitment. You need to be committed. Good. But no cigar. after the fact, you about Yeah. Just just be happy. Selfless. That's all we want in our Selfless. life Selfless. selflessness. You gotta be selfless, committed, giving. All I want is some love. What is number one? The only. It really is the only one. By the way, everything else is gravy. To quote you, huh? Sharing. You gotta have sharing. But not it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. You gotta forgive. Can't have a long-lasting relationship without forgiveness, but guess what? Not it. 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 Come on, I want it. I can't believe you've got to come up with this answer. Marriage. Marriage. (laughs) Of course. That's not it. (laughs) Faith. Faith. Give us the first letter. Is it one word? It's one word. And the first letter is a T. Trust. Correct. The key, the number one key, the only key to a long-lasting relationship is trust. Now I'm going to ask you another question. This is based on a study done by the University of Michigan in 2008. How long does it take for a couple to have mutual trust? Years. How many? I have to take a wild guess. Wild guess. I say at least two, three years. Two, three years. Anyone else? Two, three years for trust to happen. Forever. Forever is a very long time. That was my first one. Huh? Six months. Six months. Give me give me an idea. couple of weeks. Okay. Take a, take a walk on a limb and say a day you have to give it, but then it's reinforced every day. It's so poetic. <laughs> 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 a day to give it reinforced every day afterwards. Okay. Survey says <laughs> Study showed it takes between five to seven years. Five to seven years. When do most divorces take place? Five to seven years is a very is actually number two. Is the two most the second most popular time that divorces happen. Third most popular time is eighteen years, by the way. 18, 18 to twenty years. What is number one? One to Eighteen months. Eighteen months is the most popular time in two thousand and ten for divorces. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We're gonna talk about those reasons throughout the next four weeks. It's the oh shoot, I made a mistake. What? It's the oh shoot, I made a mistake. It can't be. I don't it can't be oh shoot I, make, I made you a mistake have to because guest <laughs> <back>. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, anyway. It's like two people, okay. So you well, we'll do this whole thing and then we'll keep the gifts and then we'll split it back afterwards <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a. two months like... how, <laughs> <her> <laughs> like, how do con your friends out of money one oh one? We're going to talk about all these things and why these things happen over the next four weeks. Wait, but yeah. to, 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 <laughs> you're stuck there, huh? <laughs> no, yeah. You know, the exactly. So uh, you know, it's like you had me at Shalom. So, <laughs> so real relationships. Long-lasting relationships. That's what we're talking about here tonight. Take trust. And trust takes time. Trust takes a long time. About seven years. That's a long time. That's a long time. Now, not seven years of living with each other. Seven years of a long-lasting, committed relationship. Of marriage. Yes, we will talk about this. But marriage, that whole ceremony, the stuff that nobody believes in in Quebec anymore, actually has a very real reason. There's a lot of studies that have been done on marriage. So, let's start. Number one, does anyone really know what love is? It's a nice four-letter word, but what is it really? Love. Love is the single most necessary component in human life. It's both giving and receiving. It allows us to experience another person and lets that person experience us. All too often, we look at love selfishly, as something we want and need. But true love, true love, because it's part of our relationship with God, is selfless. So let's understand this. One of our most fundamental spiritual principles is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how can this be possible? Don't I love myself more than anything else? Am I not the greatest thing that happened since creation? Is the whole world not created for moi? Am I not God's gift to humanity? Is there no one better than I, capital I? The only letter in the English language that's always capitalized. Always. It's the only letter that's a word. It's the only letter that is always capitalized. The I. One straight line between me and heaven, me, moi, the I, yeah. I decided uh, a couple of days ago that I wanted to have a selfless day, so I said I'm going to do all of my emails with lowercase case i's, you ever try that? You know what happens? Press space bar, auto capitalization, mm-hmm. it's like, you want to be selfless? You want to say you have a lowercase i? We'll show you. So, so, if I'm the greatest thing that ever happened, if I'm God's gift to humanity, how can love exist? Because no one will love me as much as I love myself. Nobody will ever understand me as much as I understand myself. No one will ever relate to me as much as I understand myself. So I might as well skip all the chivalry and romance and just get down to business. I'll marry myself. I've got a great relationship. Usually I've got two personalities anyway. <laughs> I'm good and evil and I can argue with myself as well. I'll just marry myself and finish all everything else. I mean, life is fine. I mean, why even bother going out and finding someone and the whole thing and you got to go on dates and you got to dress up. It's like so much stuff. Like, just like, I'm sure one day I'm going to see the news report that someone married themselves. (laughs) I'm sure. So my first question to you tonight is if I love myself so much How can I ever truly love someone else? Or how can someone else ever truly love me? Good question. Let's talk about the difference between selfish love and selfless love. There are two types of love. Selfish love and selfless love. They are complete opposites. Selfish love is conditional love. You simply want your needs to be met. And if the person you have chosen to love doesn't serve your needs, you reject that person and you search for someone else. Even though it may seem beautiful for a time, this type of love is bound to be fleeting. When the person you love wants help, you may give it. But once the price becomes too high, if you feel you're giving more than you're receiving, you simply stop loving. After all, there's only so much discomfort that you're willing to tolerate for another person. Selfless love, though, means rising above your own needs. It means going outside of yourself, truly connecting with another person's soul and therefore with God. There are no conditions for selfless love. When God is the focus of our love, we do not constantly redefine our wants and needs. Let me lay down what I believe is fact. You can argue with me, and I I love a good argument. Um, I'm okay with that. Argue. But I believe that a relationship cannot flourish unless there's a higher power. Unless there's what we call God. In the relationship. It's a very nice Kabbalistic uh, idea. It goes like this. In Hebrew, man is Ish. I'll do it in Hebrew because Ish, okay? Ish. In Hebrew, woman is Isha. Isha. Now, if you look at the three letters of Ish and Isha, two are the same the Aleph and the Shin. You don't have to know Hebrew to figure this one out. And there's two that are different. Well, Aleph and Shin spell "ish," which means fire. The two letters that are different are the Yud and the He, and that's God's name. So, if there's no God, there's fire. If there is God, There's man and woman. There's a relationship. So I believe that you need God in your relationship to make it work. We'll talk about what that means, bringing God into your relationship, soon. But for the time being, it means selfless. It means I don't exist. Well, I do exist, but I don't exist in the relationship. I am here for you, and you are here for me. It's not tit for tat. It's, I am completely, 100% here for you, and you are completely, 100% here for me. And because we are both here for each other, we can fulfill each other's needs much greater, much higher, much more powerful than we can ourselves we got to believe that. It's a hard belief. It's a hard belief because our nature, our instinct is to say no one can do it like I can. And the truth is, that is true. Actually, no one can do it like you can. Nobody can love you like you can. But maybe the way you love yourself is not the best way. It's possible. I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe the way you love yourself is not the best way to love. Maybe there's somebody out there in the myriads of universe, somewhere in the other, who possibly can love you better than you love yourself. Shocker. I know. But it's possible. It could happen. I've seen it happen before. So... My next question is, how do we achieve selfless love? To achieve selfless love, you have to first learn to love yourself, to create harmony between your body and soul. This means understanding who you really are and what you have been put on this earth to accomplish. Let me tell you. In case no one's told you before, let me be the first to welcome you to planet Earth. There is no one that has ever lived in this world that will ever live in this world and that is living in this world today that has the same unique purpose, unique imprint that you have. There is no one that has the same purpose as you. My favorite quote, I say this every morning when I wake up. It's a quote from my teacher, the Rebbe. He said, Birth is God's way of saying you matter. Birth is God's way of saying you matter. The moment I was born, I now matter. Every single one of us has a different purpose. If we knew the purpose, we'd be gone in a day. I mean, we just fulfill our purpose and leave. Part of that process is the search, is the finding, is the direction for 80 or 90 or 100 years until we finally fulfill our purpose. That is part of being in this world. And it's part of this being in this world that we need to embrace, not reject. Because we are unique. Every single one of us is unique. And therefore, we need to embrace our uniqueness. That is number one, first and foremost. If you don't find a way to love God, to love God, the God that resides in your soul, you'll be on a constant search for love. And we often turn to unhealthy forms of love. To replace this lack of inner love. We first must lo- uh, we first must love ourselves. Uh-huh. Yes. So I know I'm sure i this question to passengers and ask it again. So if you really what if you really don't know who you are and you don't know the reason you're put here on earth? Nobody Nobody knows why they're put on Earth. Or if you don't have the, the direction or hundred percent action while you're here. This is what I say. Start walking. If you don't know where you're going, you'll figure it out. I promise. Just walk. Sometimes you just got to get up and go. You may not know where you're going, but that's okay. Because eventually, one day you will figure out where you're going. You have to be able to embrace yourself, to love yourself and say, I matter. I am real. I matter. What I say matters. What I do matters. My unique imprint matters. I matter. Do you know why? Because I matter. And that's it. There's no one that will love someone who doesn't love themselves. I don't care how many experiences you've had. You know what I say about experiences? This is what you do with experiences. You take all of the experiences and you put them inside the bag and you take the bag and you close it and you tie a string around it and you put it on a stick and you put the stick over your shoulder. Don't lose them. Don't throw them in the garbage. But don't carry them on your forehead. Carry them on your back. They taught you valuable lessons. Learn those lessons. Don't repeat them but don't wear them. So number one, to to summarize up until this point, number one, love me. Not the capital I, the lowercase i. Love myself. Don't love yourself too much because then there's no space for anyone else. Mm -hmm. But love yourself. Now, what makes a successful marriage? It's one. It's good. The key The key to a successful marriage is appreciating its sacred nature. When a husband and wife introduce God into their relationship, they become one. With an unseen, hidden bond that makes their unity, their marriage, far greater than the sum of its parts. Two people may love and care for each other, but without a shared higher vision. They have nothing to bond them eternally. Such a bond is necessary because besides being two strangers with different personalities and backgrounds... A man and woman differ biologically, emotionally, and physiologically, and will undergo many transitions in their lives. You need something besides you and I to connect, because you will change. That's the nature of human beings. And if you don't change together for a higher purpose, you will change apart for a non-higher purpose. Questions? Anyone? very quiet. It's okay, we can talk. Trust. Trust. That is it. There's nothing more than trust. But we got to get to that point. Trust doesn't happen overnight. A lot of people in our society, it's not our fault, by the way, we have been conditioned to think that everything is instant. We need instant gratification. We live in the world of instant oatmeal. Everything's got to be instant. Throw away the microwave. In every way, I mean. Not just physically, emotionally and spiritually. Don't expect that your food is going to be heated in a minute. It's not fair. Easy come, easy go. In order for something to work long term, it must be long-term. It won't happen overnight. Don't expect a 20-year relationship in two days. People look for that. Well, I I think that our society, I'm convinced, actually, that our society knows how to get a first date, but that's it. That's it. We are a first-date society. Oh, wow. Got the date. I got the date. Okay, what do I do now? I get it all the time, people calling me rabbi do tonight you talk (laughs) drink coffee (laughs) it's okay I a little bit just a sliver we've been conditioned to think that everything is going to happen in a second do you know why we've been conditioned that way because we see it in the movies. Let me tell you a little secret. Your conscious eye and your subconscious eye don't know the difference between what they see. That's why, and I hate to use this example, but I have to. At September 11th, what was the reaction that everyone had? <gasps> Just like the Movies. Nobody looked at their TV screen watching on live television a plane hit the World Trade Center and say that was real because they've seen it a million times in the movies. Well, the same thing is with relationships. You see, every relationship in the movies is how long? Two hours. One day. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it all takes two hours. So all of our relationships in two hours, we really think that what happened to such and such an actor really can happen to us. Now, it's not really conscious, because we know it's not really going to happen, but our subconscious does believe that, by the way. Our subconscious really believes that what we saw in that romantic comedy... will work. And by the way, romantic comedies are the second most popular genre uh, um, genre right now. And people will take relationship advice from movies. Actually, the movies know that. And if you look at movies now and reviews on movies, the writers are putting relationship advice into the movies because they know people actually glean relationship advice from that two-hour movie. Well, let me tell you what it's doing to your relationships. It's turning them into two-hour relationships. That's it. We all have two-hour relationships. And then we're shocked. Like, what just happened? Guess what? Your whole relationship was a movie. So we need trust. And trust takes time. A successful marriage must include, first and foremost, trust. Trust. Trust does not come overnight. It takes years to build. But once it's in place, it serves as a solid foundation that will support a marriage through any crisis. Trust doesn't come from perfect behavior. It actually comes from accountability. You can underline that. No one can be expected to be perfect, but they can be expected to be accountable to acknowledge an error. Trust means that you have demonstrated that your spouse can depend on you, that you have the integrity to act properly even when no one but God is watching. No one expects perfection. And if you expect perfection, you're wrong. But you're expected to be there on time and with a smile. The same way your boss expects you to be there on time with a smile, or you expect yourself to be at work on time with a smile, your relationship takes that. Now accountability, what happens when you're not accountable? What happens then? It's not like you're just not accountable, actually your relationship will take a negative. So your seven years may turn into nine or ten or twelve years, depending on how many times you weren't accountable throughout the relationship. Now obviously, there's big ones of non-accountability. I don't know if talk about them. But there are things that will destroy the relationship. There are things that will really hinder the relationship. But the key to building a trusting relationship is being accountable. Now, how do you be accountable? i got some ideas here, but I'm sure you'll have your own ideas. Dedicate time with your beloved to spiritual activities, to study together, to pray together, Once a week, schedule time to discuss the emotional and spiritual paths that you're both traveling on. You must communicate. Communicate becomes the key factor to building trust and building accountability. Because if you don't know what page you're on, if you're always on pins and needles, I don't know what he thinks about me. Why don't you know what he thinks about you? Did you ever ask him? Just ask, what do you think about me? Oh, I don't know. Well, then you got to ask some more questions. Like, okay, how's it going? What's happening? you got to create a dialogue. For example, this class is not a good relationship. Because I'm talking a lot and you're not talking at all. But more than just that, share goals. Share visions. Share aspirations. Make sure that you commit time to discuss not only your monetary and domestic issues, but your more sublime and eternal issues. What's your vision? Where do you see this relationship going? Usually, when someone says, where do you see this relationship going, it means sayonara. But... Don't wait until it's sayonara. It's funny how that's become one of the terms for ending relationships. Where do you see this relationship going? You know why? Because I do it in the movies. You, you, you asked that. I'm not talking about the first date. <laughs> okay, nice knowing you. So, where do you see this relationship going? <laughs> uh, I see this relationship going to the front door. <laughs> That's it. Oh, I've got a lot of questions not to say in a first date. <laughs> but commitment is based on a mutual vision. And and sometimes it's the small things that matter. It doesn't have to be the big, huge issues. It's the small stuff. And they prove to your spouse that you're committed. Going shopping, cleaning up the house, asking if there's anything you can do to take the load off of your spouse and when one spouse travels you bring back a gift. Why do you bring back a gift? It just says, I was thinking of you. It's the small stuff. And when you are working on something independent of your home and your marriage, try to involve your spouse. I know you come back from work and you don't want to talk to your BF or your GF about Work because you're out. I don't want to talk about work, okay? I hate it. Talk about it. Because if you don't involve your partner with the things that they are not there to be with you during that time, they cannot completely share your life. You need to be able to share your life. And you know what? It actually feels good because you take the load off. You're able to talk it, talk about it, communicate. Communication is so important. And the crucial and central element in achieving a loving marriage is learning to cultivate peace at home, learning to communicate and handle the variables that will arise in any marriage, learning how to get around in arguments, how to reconcile, how to cope when things aren't going well, and above all, a loving union is whenever one spouse is having trouble, the other one should remember that they're two halves of the same soul. Not caring for your spouse is the same as neglecting yourself or, for the purpose of our conversation, neglecting God. Now, that's just my introduction. Are there any questions before we get, start getting into the meat and potatoes of this, or I mean the tofu and 10th of this conversation. Yeah. Okay. You said earlier on, just a few earlier pages, that real love isn't just needing the other person, needing so the other person to be loved and needing them to meet your needs or whatever. Okay. Then you went back, so I'm just trying to put this together. Then you went back to say that real love is when you're 100% there for each other. So, is 100% there for each other meaning you're there for each other meeting each other's needs? So. See... It's a difference it's all it's all about attitude and we'll talk about that over the next 4 weeks. It's all about your intention. You see if you're if you say why aren't you there for me? That's not okay. It's really the same thing but it's a different perspective on it. It's what am I getting out of it? What's in it for me? That's wrong. But what am I giving? That's right. So you should be concerned about what you're giving to the relationship, not what you're taking from the relationship. You should automatically, if you're both giving to the relationship, naturally, if you're giving, you've got to give to someone. You're not giving to the dog. If you are giving to the dog, that's a problem. Well, say you're giving and you're not getting your needs met. <clears throat> not really... If you're giving and you're not getting your needs met, that means the other one is not giving and there's something wrong with this relationship. Communicate. Find out what's going on. You may need a third party. Tonight, I wanted to start going through fear. Fears that people have when they think about either getting into a relationship or taking the relationship to the next step, to the next level. Most singles, from my experience, say they want to get married. At the same time, most singles harbor fears that prevent them from doing so. So, what I want to do tonight is something very practical. I want to go through common fears that people have, and let's talk about them. There may be more than this, but I, I, I put together a nice little list here. Number one I've heard this a lot I'm scared that I'll be seen as inferior. So you're the psychologist here tonight. Somebody comes to you and says, doctor, or rabbi, doesn't matter, or rabbi doctor. <laughs> I'm scared, by the way, my father always says when rabbis became doctors, Judaism became ill. <laughs> so, they come to you and they say, I'm scared that I'll be seen as inferior. What do you say to Inferior? Um, less than. Less than. So let me tell you where this comes from. So I'll give you a little background so you can make an educated decision when they come to you for advice. Children who are constantly criticized, either by their parents, older siblings, teachers, or peers, learn to believe that only those who are brilliant and beautiful are deserving of love and honor. And since I'm not, I'm unlovable. And no one normal would ever want me. Though they dream of meeting someone who will love them as they are, they also think anyone who can love someone as defective as me would have to be a complete idiot. And why would I want such a person? People who develop this belief of inferiority Even if they seem totally normal and successful on the outside, they're terrified that they won't be able to keep up the pretense after marriage and eventually their partner will find out how incompetent they are and will abandon them. So what do they do? They keep people at a distance. And they keep others from discovering their awful truth. So somebody like this, what would you tell them? Low self esteem. Low self esteem. So, what do you say? They're coming to you for advice. You say that nobody's perfect and we all have faults? No one's perfect, we all have faults. Go find a nice guy. (laughs) 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 Well, you have to put out what you want to get. So, it's sort of like, can you talk shalomish about like if you act in that mode after a certain while and you keep faking it, you might own it after a time. So sort of like even if you don't feel the role, you don't feel like you're completely confident. That's actually a very good piece of advice. Somebody who sees themselves as inferior, somebody who has a low self-esteem, tell them to fake it because eventually they'll make it. Eventually to become real. Somebody with a low self-esteem needs to start faking it. They need to pretend like they have a high self-esteem. Because guess what? By pretending they have a high self-esteem, they actually do. (laughs) There's no such thing as pretending when it comes to self-esteem. So you tell them to pretend. Fake it. Let's role-play. A lot of therapists today will role-play with people who have low self-esteem. Okay. Number two. Something I hear quite a bit. I'm scared of the unknown. There's much more openness about mental illness in the magazines and newspapers. Even teenagers talk openly about bipolar, autism, and OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Almost 25% of the American population is on some form of psychiatric medication. By the way, it's higher right now. I just checked this this morning. It's almost at 40% right now. 38% actually 2011 the imagination runs wild in young people with various what if scenarios as in what if he or she is violent addicted withdrawn hostile demanding domineering anxiety ridden irresponsible or dysfunctional these things are real concerns right with a lot of people and especially since we've been in these scenarios before we have this experience before. So you can't tell me it doesn't exist. That's what dating is for. But how do you know? Well, you might have, I think, how I do you. Know. They, they could put on a good show. Yeah. Um, reality will be up eventually. So if somebody comes to you and tells you that, you can say just try it. You won't know until you actually get to know someone. Okay. So get to know them. So maybe we'll have to talk about how to get to know someone. Okay? What else? What are you going to tell them if they come and tell you this? I am scared of the unknown. Everything in life is unknown. Okay. Everything. Take a chance. Gotta take a chance. Everything in life is the unknown. Okay. What else? Keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Anything else? Embrace the unknown. It's an adventure. That's interesting. Embrace the unknown. It could be an adventure. You never know what could happen on the other side of the door. Okay. This is some, this is one I get a lot, shockingly, by the way. I'm scared to marry someone who is less than I. Some children, especially younger ones, are brought up to think that I'm so spectacular that no one is good enough for me. It's very common now in 20-year-olds. The, mm-hmm. the People in their 20s. Very common now. They, ha- they grew up with these parents that just showered them with these high, very high self-esteems, and now they are the greatest thing since chicken soup. <laughs> and nobody... Too much praise. And nobody can be my matzo ball. <laughs> Lots of praise, because lots. You're good at everything, rather than hey, you're really great at that. Yeah. So you're not so good at that. You can't be good at everything. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, exactly. Have fun doing it anyway. But some, it's true, a lot of parents are here. A lot of you parents really day spend. You no, know, it's All like day. that. Constant, constant, constant praise. These types, these types of people, think of themselves as part of the royal elite. And they are really like they they're looking for the prince or princess. They can, they can go on hundreds of dates and after two minutes they decide the person is beneath me. They feel like they're retaining some sense of self-worth by holding out for the fantasy. A lot of young people today are in for the fantasy. It's, it's Cinderella. It's, I don't know what, it's not even Cinderella, it's the prince and princess. I have a girl um, who's, been, who's, uh, who's actually been calling me quite a bit uh, as a as a matchmaker, and she her parents are like the count and countess of some place. I don't know what it's called. She's really royalty. Yeah, she's really royalty. This girl. She's a Jewish girl. Her mother's Jewish. Her father converted, but he was like a count and married this Jewish woman, who's now the countess. And this girl is like a princess. I call her my princess, and. She is 29 years old. She has a very specific type of person that she's looking for, which, by the way, does not exist. But she will not date anyone because the first person she dates, she has to marry. In her mind. Her parents don't think so. I've talked to both of them. Her parents don't think so. But the first person that she dates in her mind, she has to marry. So therefore, they have to meet the exact criteria. But I I said to her, you know, I've done this quite a bit. I'm just curious... If there's no chemistry and he's perfect on paper, what are you going to do? This girl, and many are not as extreme as her, but are similar to this. They are married to a fantasy. It's not a person, it's a piece of paper, and this is exactly what I want and nothing else. I'll tell you right away. I have a rule. My rule is like this. I give you six things. Three things you can't live without and three things you can't live with and that's it. Everything else is gravy. Everything else is a plus. That's what you get. Example. What? Of three things you can't live without? Yeah. Yeah. I can't live without someone who is respectful. I can't live without someone who uh, makes me laugh. I can't live without someone. It can, be, it can be whatever you want, but you get three of them. <laughs> I can't live with someone who smokes. I can't live with someone who, um, huh? Always late. Who's always late. <laughs> so, think about it. You'll see. You'll find your six. Actually, what, what, I, what I will do if you want to know the exercise, the exercise is like this it's your homework for next week if you want. You don't have to do my own work. But uh, I encourage you to take advantage of this because I will, I will be happy to go over it with you. My, your homework for next week is to write down a list of everything you want. All 5,000 things. Everything. I want everything. Down to the last detail. Make a list of everything you want. I'll show you how there's six. Unless you're the princess. In that case, good luck. Next one. I hear this pretty often. I fear marrying someone who's imperfect. Physical perfectionists want someone who is flawless in terms of appearance, cleanliness, and organization. The spouse must possess just the right features and have impeccable manners and dress all time at all uh, dress perfect at all times. Emotional perfectionists want someone who can provide perfect understanding and will always say the right words. Spiritual perfectionists, they also exist, want someone who's perfectly righteous. No one can pass a test of a perfectionist, since every person has physical, emotional, and spiritual flaws. It seems safer to stay married to the fantasy of perfection than to live with a real human being. A lot of people are married to their thoughts. Thoughts are powerful. Thoughts create. In my Kabbalah classes, I talk a lot about thought and about how thoughts create. Thought is really powerful. People get married to their thoughts. They might as well just put a ring around their brain and say, yes, I do. We're running um, short on time, so um, I'm going to go through the next few a little quicker so that we have a few few minutes for questions. This is one I hear probably more than any other. I'm scared of repeating my parents' marriage. I'm going to say this to you. It may not apply to you, but I'm going to say it to you. If you know someone in this situation, you can tell them. This is 100% fact. You cannot... Go against this, and that is, if you come from a divorced home, if your parents got divorced, especially if they got divorced when you were young, you must decide how they got divorced, why they got divorced, and how you're not going to do it. It will haunt you forever otherwise. A child of divorced parents, even if it's not true, you don't have to ask your parents, why they got divorced. Even if it's not true, you must figure it out and figure out what you're going to do in your relationship to make sure it doesn't happen. That that clarity will save your relationships. And it can't happen while you're in the relationship. It must happen outside of if you're in a relationship, you must take yourself outside of it for the 20 minutes when you figure this out. It's not hard. you just got to figure it out. you got to decide, this is the reason, and this is how I'm going to solve it. Otherwise, you're going to be scared of repeating your parents' marriage. And that goes if your parents had a bad marriage as well, even if they were married. A lot of our parents stayed married even though they should have been divorced. Children who witness strife and mental illness in their homes are terrified of repeating these patterns. A powerful phenomenon known as repetition compulsion is what compels many people to repeat unhealthy childhood patterns, even if they know that these behaviors are harmful. For example, a man with a domineering mother may have extremely hostile reaction to even the most innocent requests by his wife, fearing that he will again be under this terrible rule of a woman. A woman who had a neglectful father may fear that she will be abandoned. Both may react to conflict by withdrawing or attacking because they've never learned how to respect differences or work out mutually acceptable solutions. If you're single, then you don't have to face being hurt. It's hard. I've seen this a lot. But it's so important because... There's little things, and they just have to be acknowledged and taken care of. And these are the little things that block us from actually finding that one. We're just scared. You see, contrary to popular belief, opposites don't attract. Attraction means similarity. Men and women, by nature, are opposites. That's it. Attraction is similarity. We are attracted to similar ideals, ideas, interests... That's why when you see the singles profile likes long walks in the park. Oh, I like long walks in the park. You're looking for things that you're attracted to, that are similar to you, that are familiar to you. Well, guess what? What is the most familiar relationship to you? Your parents. So obviously, if you don't deal with it, you will repeat your parents' relationship. You won't even realize. No, your father screams all the time. Or she used to scream all the time. He will say, I'm never going to scream. Ever in my life, I will never scream. And surely enough, there you are screaming. How did that not? That was not me. That's my dad. How did that just happen to me? Because it's familiar. That's all you know. You just never dealt with it. So how do you deal with it? You got to deal with it. So it does, can you deal with it on your own? Do people need to go see a the therapist? Before? You got to see a the therapist. That's, I, there's a few things that I say you gotta see a therapist for. That's one of them. Um, depends how you know. Depends how extreme it is. If it was just a little, uh, you know, if it was not that. If it was, if it was like a real brutal experience, that you gotta see a therapist. If it was small, you may be able to deal with it yourself. I can give you some uh, some tips. Uh, I, I mean, if anyone wants it, I can I, I can probably write up some tips for how to deal with it. Do I have permission to go overtime tonight? Anyone in a rush? Is that okay? Can I go 15 minutes over time and finish this? Okay, Thank you. I'm sorry for, for this. The next one. I'm scared of losing my identity. Not as common anymore, but still to a certain extent. There's still a little bit of an ember of the past that, that, that resonates with a lot of women. Women seem more frightened of identity loss than men. Before marriage, a girl or woman has a degree of freedom as to what to wear, what to study, and how to spend their time. After marriage, her identity is often submerged in that of her husband. She takes his last name, may follow his customs, adjust the needs and demands of her children, or even if there isn't children, there's always needs and demands. Just how it goes. After the initial excitement of marriage has faded, some women become depressed and resentful feeling they've lost all sense of individuality. This may be why the Rambam, Maimonides, advises that husbands and wives each have their own individual realms in which they make decisions. The freedom to to make one's own decisions strengthens self-esteem. I'm a huge fan of this. This is what I do. um, Couples that I marry, I require them to come for three sessions of premarital counseling. And one of the One of the sessions is all about this, about how to share mutual decisions. What I do is I divide a lot of the major decisions and even some minor decisions in their lives in half, and I establish that separation. So that way the man and woman in the relationship both have mutual decisions they can make, and they can actively contribute to the the decision-making process in the relationship. It's so important. And I know we live in this world of equality, but guess what, we missed a lot of that equality. And part of that equality is the relationships. No one taught us how to be equal in relationships. We think we know how, but we really don't. And that goes into the next one. I'm scared of losing my freedom. A person, in Hebrew is a bachur, a bachelor, or a bachura, a single woman, until marriage. This word is related to the Hebrew verb, to choose. Once people marry, there's a loss of freedom. They can no longer make a purchase, meet with friends, or make plans without consulting the other. This loss of choice is very hard to bear for some people, especially people who've been alone for a long time. For example, those who like to hang out with friends or pursue a particular career fear I have no freedom to do what I want. I have to submit to my spouse's demands, and if not, I'll be attacked for being uncaring or irresponsible. The loss of freedom makes them feel stifled and imprisoned. Once again, what will you tell them? Does anyone have an answer, my dear psychologist? What? Yeah, what would you tell the person? They say, I'm going to lose my freedom. you're saying is you have to communicate communication will solve all these problems just talk here's one that I get a lot someone better is going to come along what do I do then you know what the answer to that is no couple-y things if you're recently married, married or you're in a serious relationship, don't do stuff with couples. I'm very against coupley things. Until how long? Until when? A year. Don't do stuff with other couples? Other couples. Like, Until what? when? Ever? Why? Until when? Until there's trust. Until there's trust. <laughs> to five? 5 to 7 years. <laughs> you know why? why? There will always be comparing going around. <laughs> you will never be able to You'll never be able to stop that. There will always be comparing going around. People will, oh, I could have had her. It happens. I hear this a lot. Oh, did we go on a date once? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So you're saying you yourself don't, don't go out? not go out as a couple with your life? Right? Not with other couples, no. So what did you do? What did I do? I went out with her. Shock. <laughs> just the two of you. You never yes, of yes, until we, we're trusting. Until we built up trust. Really? Every couple is different. But you I need to. With that. But you, I, I'm not saying five years, but until exactly. you can communicate, until you're comfortable, not in the first year, for sure not. Not even a question for the first wow. year. <laughs> it's a big problem. And people think, oh, we're couples, let's go out. Guess what? There's a lot of tension that goes on over there. A lot of tension. You think about it, if you've ever been in that scenario, you may find that when you get back from that experience, you're fighting. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out there. You're, you're saying it's true. Fight me. I'll prove it to you. No, 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 no. no. I, I, I know. I'm, I'm going to fight myself. I want someone to fight me on it. Bite me on it. You've never experienced Can it. I give you to I, no. Guess what? It's true. You've never experienced it. But guess who has? Your partner. Men experience that all the time. Men. I want to give you a little shock. I am going to. I am going to give you the shock of your life. There was a study that was done about platonic relationships. Every woman, every single woman that was interviewed, how many people? There was 679 women and almost 700 men were interviewed. Every single woman said they can have a platonic platonic relationship and guess what? Every single man said no. That's how black and white it is. They're lying. There's not a man that said in that entire. It was, the study was done by Dr. John Gottman, someone who I admire and trust, and he. It was a shocking, shocking discovery. I mean, we always knew it in, in in the world of psychology, but it was proven. Men have a very difficult time with the gray area. There's no gray area. There's no such thing, and that's the problem. You see, the women say, "What's the problem? I had a great night." and the men got things going on in their head. I'm sorry for the shock. I didn't say it was gonna be easy here tonight. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with your friend. What? I'm not sure I agree with your friend. That There's gotta be more details. There is a lot of details, I don't wanna go into it now. If you want, I can send you the study. Um, I'm scared that someone better will come along. This is a male issue. In general. Watch out. The last one, my favorite. I have heard this in this exact phrase. I am scared that I won't be able to bear the discomforts. Again, there are many what ifs. What if he leaves his dirty socks under the bed, gets sick, snores, eats noisily, has bad moods, leaves things strewn about, chatters, withdraws into hostile silence, or has irritating habits? How will I cope? These fears are especially strong in people who are traumatized in early life by abusive parents or siblings. They find it difficult to bear being in close proximity with other people for more than short time. It's now known that the brain structure and hormonal chemistry of people who were abused or neglected in early childhood is different from people who grew up in a loving atmosphere. When they come near a person, instead of building trust, their old fears are triggered. Each of these fears require that a person adopt a new set of beliefs. It's not simple or quick they touch on our most primal anxiety of being rejected, hurt, or abandoned. Hopefully, I'll be able to shed some light on this in the future. Any questions? I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about them throughout is the next, I, I will, there is strategies, I will talk about some of the strategies, obviously I cannot talk about it in four hours, I mean, I'll, I'm good to, this is an introduction, what I'm hoping over the next four weeks that you will learn is what to ask and how to deal with it, I'm giving you an overview of all of my, of my whole structure of relationships, so you're, you're going to be able to identify what your problem is over the next four weeks, you may not be able to get the answer over the next four weeks. Some of these answers are not answers that you can answer in two minutes. Some of them take time, and each person deals with it differently, and they need to be dealt with on a one-on-one basis. Once we identify the problem, we come to you for some more specific. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always here, obviously. Um, but, but it's important. What I'm hoping is that you will identify the problem. It's a start. Yeah, it's a start, exactly. At least you're in step one instead of step zero. Zero to one is the hardest. Once you identify the issue, you can solve the issue, if you want to. If you don't want to, then you don't want to. In any case, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to another uh, three weeks of this. I hope I didn't give you too much to think about, and if I did, too bad. (laughs)